Hello and welcome to the Harper's Magazine podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the web editor. Back in June, Thomas Frank, the author of What's the Matter with Kansas and Listen Liberal, gave a talk at Book Culture about his new book, Rendezvous with Oblivion, Reports from a Sinking Society, which collects essays, many of them originally published in Harper's, on a variety of political and cultural subjects. Presidential libraries, a history of the McMansion, the advent of academic capitalism, Andrew Breitbart, and the poverty of centrism. In this episode, we represent the recording of this event, including audience questions. There's a kind of sense in this book of the of my and maybe your frustration at what feels like the eternal cycle of the culture wars, this kind of boom and bust thing that never ends, right? And here it is again. Donald Trump revving up the culture wars all over again, and just today we learned he gets to name another Supreme Court justice. He's subverting federal agencies. He's busting unions just like all the Republicans to come before him. And of course, he's doing it all in the name of the, of the common people, just like the Gingriches and the Reagans and the Nixons to come before. And it, it is just so maddening to me that this goes on and on and on, and it seems to be impervious to any kind of you know journalistic intervention. But you think of the amazing opportunity that we had to interrupt this cycle permanently back in 2008, you know, when the market economy had finally done itself in. And Barack Obama comes into the White House with this fantastic mandate behind him, you know, desperate people uh, anxious for him to do something finally about inequality. And I, I, I think about that moment, and I think it could have been Franklin Roosevelt all over again, you know. We could be in the, in the second year of the Biden presidency or something like that. I don't know, whatever. Massive majorities that would have gone on and on and on for decades interrupt this cycle once and for all, and instead we're right back to square one. You know, It's Nixon all over again. And Trump mimics, you know this, he mimics Nixon all the time. It's Ronald Reagan all over again. That's what Make, Make America Great is, right? That slogan that's lifted directly from Reagan, only a different hairdo this time, right? And... <laughs> more flamboyant posturing and ever more outrageous rhetoric. So all of the essays in Rendezvous with Oblivion aim at one essential story. I'm trying to tell one story in this book with all of these different essays, and it's this. This is what a society looks like when the glue that holds it together starts to dissolve. This is the way ordinary citizens react when they learn that the structure beneath them is crumbling. And this is the thrill that pulses through the veins of the well-to-do when they discover that there is no longer any limit on their power to accumulate. So in strict headline terms, the essays in this book uh, cover the years of the Obama presidency and then the populist explosion that marked its end. And it was a time when liberal hopes were sinking and the newly invigorated right was proceeding from triumph to triumph. Now, for a few people, as I mentioned, these were years of great personal satisfaction. The uh, effects of what we used to call the Great Recession were slowly uh, receding, and affluence had returned to smile once again on the tasteful and the fortunate. And the lucky ones resumed their fascinating inquiries into the art of the cocktail 
and the science of the grandiose suburban home, and for them things transpired reassuringly just like before. But for the many, this was a period when reassurance was in short supply. Ordinary Americans began to understand in these years that recovery or not, things would probably never be the same in their town or their neighborhood. And for them, this was a time of cascading collapse with one trusted institution after another visibly deteriorating. Folks, it was a golden age of corruption. And when I say that, I don't mean that our top political leaders were on the take over the last decade, they weren't, but rather that, I mean it in a larger sense, that our guardian class in this country had been either subverted or put to sleep. Human intellect no longer served the interests of the public. It served money or else it ceased to serve at all. And that was the theme of this era that I'm describing, whether the locale was Washington, D.C. or the college that your kids attended or the city desk of your rapidly shrinking local newspaper. Of course, that's not a problem for you here in New York. We'll talk about that later. Basically, it goes like this. No one was watching out for the interests of the people, and the people could increasingly see that this was the case. It was the financial crisis of 2008 that engraved this pattern, I think, permanently in the public mind. Every trusted professional group that touched on the mortgage industry had turned out to be corrupt. Real estate appraisers, remember? Real estate appraisers had puffed the housing bubble. Credit rating agencies had puffed Wall Street's trashy securities. And of course, the investment banks themselves had created financial instruments that were designed to destroy their clients. And then, of course, as the larger economy of the world spiraled earthward, and as millions of people around the world lost jobs and homes, the trusted professionals of our federal government stepped in to ensure that their brother professionals on Wall Street would suffer no ill effects. So for this generation, for our generation, the bailout of the crooks would stand as the ultimate demonstration of the worthlessness of institutions, the sort of nightmare knowledge that lurked behind every scam that was to come. And what I describe in Rendezvous with Oblivion is a vast panorama of such scams, a republic of ripoffs, if you will. Bernie Sanders, who's sort of the archetypal reform figure of our time, likes to say that the business model of Wall Street is fraud. But I think that in truth, we could say that about many of the designated protectors of our health and well-being. Uh, pharmaceutical companies, for example, we learned that they jack up prices for no reason other than because they can, because it is their federally guaranteed right to do so. The brainpower of Silicon Valley, meanwhile, concentrates on the search for ingenious ways to harvest private information and build monopolies so that it, too, can gouge the world with impunity. Now in politics, of course, the scam and the fib are as old as the earth itself. And even so, these were years of extraordinary innovation in the field. The rise of the super PAC, the Citizens United decision, these drew the most attention in this regard. But what seems most striking now, looking back, is the way the casual dishonesty of politics started to spill over into everyday life. What I mean by that is 
the consolations of ideology were no longer the property of the pundit class. They were massified. They became available to the millions via Facebook and Twitter and the political entertainers on cable news. So, so millions of Americans came to believe that everything was political and that therefore everything was faked, that everyone was a false accuser, so why not accuse people falsely, that any complaint or grievance that you could come up with could ultimately be confounded by some clever meme that they or their TV heroes had discovered the made-up argument by which they could drown out that still, small voice of reality. Legitimate public defenders like newspapers were simply shutting down. And as your local paper went silent, which is a big problem in the part of the world that I come from, by the way, and as your local newspaper went silent, the reign of facticity seemed to crumble as well. Among the newspapers that survived, and there's basically only two or three, depending on how you count it, that matter. Think about that for a second. In this country of 320 million people, we have three newspapers that matter. And everybody else in the media takes their, uh, you know, their talking points from those three papers. But among the, and there's really only two that matter, as we all know. The Wall Street Journal, my former employer, is something of an outlier. But among the two papers that, that mattered, the resident professionals sometimes seemed to be in complete denial about what was going on around them. This was a golden age of journalism, they chanted. And as their little world shrank and the public grew to hate them more and more, the survivors came together in an ever tighter circle of professional unanimity, agreeing with one another on the correct interpretation of an extraordinary variety of events. Now, fake news flourished, of course, and for every newspaper that withered away, an opportunity opened up for somebody willing to imitate what had gone before. Social media entrepreneurs of every description flourished, as did homegrown propagandists and online scam artists. And it sometimes felt as though everyone you knew was, you know, search engine optimizing something or uh, making some sort of bogus documentary <laughs> or Photoshop, Photoshopping, you know, some outrageous text onto some stock photo they had found. And the Internet teemed with collators of tweets, makers of memes, content farms, traffickers in panic and stereotype, liars for hire. Now, we all know this country has long been, has always been friendly to quacks and mountebanks and false accusers. I mean, that's who we are, right? But there's something different today. The quacks and the mountebanks, they own the place now. And everybody knows it. The con game today is our national pastime. And what has made all of this possible, the underlying condition that makes all this possible is not a mystery. For most Americans, the props of middle class life are growing expensive and out of reach. And at the same time that this is happening, the rewards that are showered on society's handful of winners have grown astronomically greater. We all know this, and the result is precisely what our cynical ancestors would have expected. People will do anything, and I mean anything, to be one of the winners. What I am describing here is not sustainable, 
as people back in DC like to say. I mean, folks, you can't build a civilization on rolled back odometers or by taking out no-doc loans to pay for a wave of scam phone calls to senior citizens or by amassing greater and greater personal debt to, fan to purchase fancy college degrees that are worth objectively less than they used to be and might well prove to be worthless altogether. Or by elevating to the presidency a con man who mimics your way of talking but has no idea how to govern. And so we come to Donald Trump. I think the, the very personification of this low, dishonest age Every single one of the, 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 the trends that I just described, everything that I describe in the book, it's, it's kind of uncanny, really. Everything I describe in the book culminates with this guy. He is an Ivy League graduate who went into business handing out degrees of his own. <laughs> he is a dealer in tasteless palatial real estate. <laughs> he is a one-man right-wing propaganda bureau who doesn't seem to be able to distinguish between what was true and what's false, you know, in his constant uh, tweetings and accusings. So Trump, I think, is the most, and I've been writing about fake populism now for 20 years, and this guy is the most virulent fake populist of them all. A blue-collar billionaire, his admirers call him. A Republican who is carried to victory by his lovable habit of <laughs> inventing cruel nicknames for his opponents. And the legitimate media in this country came together against him as a matter of course, right? Tallying up his falsehoods and insults and assuring readers that this guy represented the end, finally, the end of conservatism at long last. And the country's newspapers endorsed his Democratic opponent by an unprecedented margin. Now, for all that, I think there was still something real about Trump, or I should say about the sufferings of the working class people who attended his rallies and made him their president during the crazy election of 2016. And these people, these are people on the receiving end of every one of the trends that I've just described. These are people living in the world dominated by the self-serving professionals who screwed things up and then survived to screw things up again. And despite what my friends back in the Beltway assured them, these people knew that the elites were corrupt and the trade deals were bad. And what others saw as Trump's falsehoods, they saw as a form of honesty, a kind of plain speaking directness that was refreshing in its vulgarity. And they look not to be saved by ex experts, but rescued from them. And Trump's achievement, if you want to call it that, was to make himself the vehicle of their hopes. Now I'm going to read from an essay I wrote. I'm going to drink this water now. An essay that I wrote in 2016. This was in Harper's Magazine. And it was about um, the Washington Post's op-ed page. And it's um, almost unbelievably hostile treatment of the outsider presidential candidate, Bernie Sanders. Uh, okay, now in this essay, I summarize the Post's, uh, their op-ed page and the way that they attacked Bernie Sanders. I summarize this in some detail, okay, and it goes on and on. Um, and you'll, you'll read that at some point because it's in here and it's really awesome. Anyhow, it ends, it, the, the essay concludes like this, okay? After summarizing all of the many, 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 many ways in which they 
they you know, attacked Bernie Sanders. Think of all the grand ideas that flicker in the background of the stories I've just recounted. There's the admiration for consensus. There's the worship of pragmatism and bipartisanship. There's the contempt for populist protest. There's the rep repeated equating of dissent with partisan disloyalty. And just think of all the bad ideas this pragmatism entailed. The cheers for the bank bailouts. The indignant refusal to question the Democratic National Committee. The dismissal of single-payer health care as a preposterous dream. What I'm describing, of course, is a very familiar thing. This is the ideology of the professional class, of your sound-minded East Coast strivers, fresh out of Princeton or Harvard, eagerly quoting as authorities, their peers in the other professions, whether you're talking about economists at MIT or analysts at Credit Suisse or political scientists at Brookings. This ideology that I'm describing constantly reassures us that the experts who head up our system of government have everything well under control. And above all, of course, it is an insider's ideology, a way of thinking that comes from a place of economic security and that takes a view of the common people that is distinctly patrician. Okay? All that's pretty straightforward. Now here comes the mystery. Why would journalists of all people buy into such an ideology, right? As a group, journalists aren't economically secure. Uh, newspapers are museum pieces today, every bit as much as Bernie Sanders' New Deal policies. The newsroom layoffs never stop. Book review editors are so rare a species now that they may disappear completely unless somebody figures out how to breed them in captivity. The same thing goes for the journalists who used to cover police departments and city halls. At some papers, opinion columnists are expected to have day jobs elsewhere, and copy editors have pretty much gone the way of the great auk. That is an extinct bird, folks. In other words, no group knows the story of the dying middle class more intimately than journalists. So why? Do the people at the top of this profession identify themselves with the satisfied and the powerful? Why in the world would a person working in a dying industry compose a salute to the Wall Street bailouts? <laughs> I mean, it's not funny, but it's like, it's just, it's just so bizarre when you think about it. Why would a columnist for a newspaper drop megatons of angry repudiation on Sanders for his, quote, outrageous negativity? about the state of the country. I mean, why? For the country's journalists, that state is pretty goddamn negative. Maybe it's something about journalism itself. I mean, this is a field, after all, that has embraced the forces that are killing it to a pathological degree. There's no institution has a greater appetite for trendy internet thinkers than journalism schools, you know, and we're all desperately convincing ourselves that we need to become entrepreneurs or get ourselves attuned to the digital future, you know, the future that is, as it is described for us by a cast of transparent con artists. When the TV comedian uh, John Oliver did a riff a couple of years ago about the tragic decline of newspaper journalism, just about the only group in America that didn't think it was funny was 
the Newspaper Association of America, which didn't think we should be nostalgic about the days when its members were successful. <laughs> I mean, truly, folks, we are like buffalo nuzzling the rifles of our hunters. <laughs> or maybe the answer is that the people at the top of the journalism hierarchy simply don't identify with their plummeting peers. Maybe the members of the DC Pundit Corps think that they will never suffer the same fate as, say, the Tampa Tribune. And maybe they're right. As the rising waters inundate the fourth estate, it is increasingly obvious that becoming an insider is the only way to hoist yourself above the deluge. And maybe that's one reason why the um, Washington Post attracted the fancy of mega billionaire Jeff Bezos and why the Post seems to be thriving these days with a fancy new office building on K Street and a swelling cohort of young bloggers ravening to be the next George Will or the next Sidney Blumenthal. The paper remains, however, precariously the cradle of the punditocracy. And meanwhile, between journalism's insiders and its outsiders, between the ones who are rising and the ones who are sinking, there is no solidarity at all. Back in DC, every pundit and every would-be pundit identifies upward, right? Always upward. And we cling to our credentials and our professional class fantasies. We hobnob with the senators and the governors. We trade, the wit trade witticisms with friendly cabinet officials. We help ourselves to the champagne and the lobster at the reception. And everybody wants to know our opinion. We like to think they want to celebrate our birthday. They want to find out where we went for cocktails after work last night. Until the day that is when you wake up and you learn that the tycoon behind your media concern has changed his mind and everyone is laid off and it was never really about you in the first place. Gone, the private office, the award-winning column, the cable news show, the checks start bouncing, the booker at MSNBC stops calling and suddenly you find that you are a middle-aged maker of paragraphs of useless things dumped out into a billionaire's world that has no need for you and doesn't really give a damn about your degree in comparative lit from Brown. And you start to think a little differently about universal health care and tuition-free college and Wall Street bailouts, but of course it's too late by then. Too late for all of us. Now I'm going to read from a essay that I published in Harper's earlier this year. I actually wrote it last year. It is about how Donald Trump is going to get reelected. And what I want to focus on, lastly, is not that per se. You can read why I think that might happen and the scenarios by which he might get reelected and the scenarios by which he might not. Okay, we'll skip all that. What I want to focus on now is how right wing populism can be defeated more or less permanently. Donald Trump will never seem like a natural or inevitable president to me, and not merely because he is a cad in a shockingly cantilevered ducktail, but be <laughs> a, a DA, as they used to call it. <laughs> Y'all know what I'm talking about. But, but not because of that, of course, but because I can't help but feel that 
right-wing populism is itself a freakish historical anomaly. Yes, I know it has been running strong for decades. I myself have been writing about it for 20 years. By its very nature, however, it is a put-on. It's a volatile substance. It is riven with contradictions. It rails against elites while cutting taxes for the rich. It pretends to love the common people while insulting certain people for being a little too common. It worships the working man while steadily worsening his conditions. Nor can I reconcile myself to the kind of prosperous, pious liberalism that predominates nowadays, this kind of nice suburban politics that finds it easy to love Google and Goldman, but that can be downright contemptuous toward the desperate middle class that liberalism was born to serve. To my eye, the passionless technocrats that it has repeatedly chosen as its leaders seem as unnatural as Trump himself. But maybe that's just me, still dazed by what happened on election night in 2016. I mean, nothing in politics seems right anymore. I keep assuming that a society that is plunging, plumbing the depths of inequality ought to be a society that is turning to the left. That a populist moment ought to be a democratic moment. That the natural agent of public discontent ought to be the more liberal of the two parties. And one fine day, I keep telling myself, we will give that TV set a smack and everything will snap back into focus and Americans will clearly understand what a charlatan Trump is. That in January 2021, we will eject him from the White House in disgrace, a Herbert Hoover, a scowling mistake that we will never make again. What might Democrats do to bring that about? Well, the first question, the obvious question facing them is, of course, the party's identity. I mean, that's really the only question at this point. Do we accept, or I should say, do they accept the Republicans' invitation to continue on as they have done before, making themselves more and more into an expression of professional class disdain? Is that what they do, friend of the enlightened financier, careful curator of the Silicon Millennium? Back in 1941, President Franklin Roosevelt set down his understanding, his sort of vision of American political history. And he wrote, there were two schools of political belief, liberals and conservatives that struggled endlessly for primacy, okay? And regardless of what it was called at any particular moment, he wrote, the liberal party believed in the wisdom and efficacy of the will of the great majority, as distinguished from the judgment of a small minority of either education or wealth. So that's how he saw it. And the parties, it doesn't, doesn't matter if he's talking about the Republican Party right after the Civil War or if he's talking about the Democrats in some period. There's always two essential factions in American life, one that represents the great majority and the other that represents the sort of uh, Hamiltonian minority. And what Roosevelt did not foresee, could not have foreseen, was a party system in which the divide fell between the, uh, you know, not between the few and the many, but rather between the small minority of education and the small minority of wealth. 
How could he have known that his great majority would one day be split in two and offered a choice between enlightened technocrats on the one side and resentful billionaires on the other? You get that great majority back together, I think, and they would be unstoppable. There is really only one form of politics for an age of inequality like this one, and it naturally favors the party of Roosevelt. Trump succeeded by pretending to be the heir of populists past, uh, sort of acting out this role as a rough-hewn reformer who detested the powerful and cared about working-class people. And now it is the turn of the Democrats to take that away from him. They may have to fire their consultants. They may have to stand up to their donors. And they will certainly have to find the courage to change, to dump the ideology of the 1990s, the sort of catechism of tech, bank, and globe that everyone now knows is nothing but an excuse for an out-of-touch elite. But the time has come, folks. History is calling. Thank you very much. Okay, so let's do some questions. Let's talk. Do, we, do you have a microphone or how do you want to do this? So uh, uh, he's got the microphone. You hand it to someone. And um, a reminder that a, a question ends in a question mark. <laughs> and um, try to keep it to one sentence. Thank you. Sorry. Hi, thanks. Hi. Um, a young woman just won election in the Bronx. I don't remember her name, but she was a progressive promoted by Bernie Sanders, and she beat a long-term Democrat in, in Queens. Yes. And uh, Nancy Pelosi said, well, that's basically just a progressive neighborhood in one county, and it's not the direction we're did, going. Did Nancy Pelosi really blow it off? She really blew it off completely. Oh, that is so wrong. That is appalling. So I just wanted to share that. Okay. So, all right. Um, and I'll, I'll put the question mark on there for you. Uh, yeah, I, th I think what happened in the Bronx yesterday is, is wonderful. I am ecstatic. And uh, and this, uh, her name is Victoria Ocasio-Lopez. So, excuse me, Alexandria. Uh, names with X's in them and names with V's in them, I just, you know, they all get, they get confused in my mind. But I, I, she said the most wonderful thing today. Um, I was, <clears throat> maybe she said it several days ago, I don't know when she said it, but I saw it for the first time today where they were asking her about this sort of tension between race and class issues. And she says, I've never seen a class issue that didn't also involve race and vice versa. And it's like, yeah, that's, that is so true. Why can't, I mean, that is not only true, it's obvious, right? <laughs> Why can't we talk about it in that way? Why can't we just be as forthright and as blunt and as correct as that? And there's also this hand-wringing <clears throat> that this is not the direction for the Democrats to go and if they want to win back. Iowa or whatever, or, you know, my ancestors are from Iowa. I think this is great. I think this is the greatest thing in the world. I'm, I'm ecstatic about it. Okay, next question. I think that the current strategy of the Democratic Party these days is to run a bunch of ex-CIA agents and military <laughs> people. No, they're doing it. They're getting young, attractive CIA agents, ex-CIA agents and military people to run in all these districts. And they figure that that's going to reverse their fortunes. Um, 
I kind of blame, I go back to Eisenhower, and I think the Democratic Party and, and the Republican Party has been on a tremendously, uh, I'm asking you, wrong course uh, and have caused millions and millions of needless deaths throughout the world. And uh, I'm really, I don't know, I, I go back, you know, all the way. And yeah. these last 50 years have been <laughs> terrible. And I think that my own feeling is that Robert Kennedy would, would have changed the cor that course of history. Oh, yes. That's a good one. So <clears throat> what can I say? The, the Democrats running sort of military figures, CIA figures, that kind of thing. This was um, the strategy that Rahm Emanuel had in 2000. And what year was that? Six? Was it six? And it was, it appeared to work. Uh, back then, and that's why they're trying it again. But basically, you can, it's really easy to understand the way, the way the Democratic Party settles on its strategies and the kind of things they do. It, whatever they do and whatever they say and whatever they think and whatever they promote, it doesn't require them to change. That's always the essential thing. They'll do anything else, but they, as long as they don't have to change that sort of essential relationship they have with, uh, you know, uh, the, the uh, uh, innovative economy, the innovation, you know, what I wrote about in Listen Liberal. So that's my last book uh, about the Democratic Party and where they went wrong. And there's a funny question that one of my, one of the guys who's helping me with it, with the research, a guy in D.C. who has tangled with the Democrats for a really long time. And he said when I was starting this project, he's like, you know, oh, you're going to do a critique of the Democratic Party. Where are you going to start? Because that's, that's always the question. Where are you going to start? And I, as it happens, I started in 1968 and sort of traced where they went wrong from there. But of course, you can go back much, much, much farther. But um, OK, I'm shutting up now. Next question. <laughs> yes, where is that microphone? Any, there's, there's a bunch of people back here. Uh, what happens now with uh, Kennedy leaving the court? Um, there'll be six conservative justices, so there's a very good chance that Roe Ro v. Wade could get rolled back in the next uh, you know, five years or so. Uh, but on the, there could be a plus side to that, which is that that has been, to me, the number one issue in the culture wars. And yeah. one, of the big oh, reasons, yeah. one of the big reasons that conservatives you know, and evangelicals voted for Trump was that they knew he would put in a conservative Supreme Court justice. So I guess the question I, I'm asking is, if Roe versus Wade is, is, is rolled back and it, and it falls back to the states to decide whether to allow abortion or not, will that actually defang the whole abortion you know, argument, take that out and actually perhaps help, you know, tamp down the culture wars in some way. Man, wouldn't that, it would just be in incredibly shocking if something like that happened, especially as a place like Ireland is going in the other direction, you know, that we would be such an international outlier. I mean, we are in many ways, but that would just be. So I'm from Kansas, and it's one of the places that had its entire politics stood on its head by, by the anti-abortion movement, I should say. And Kansas was, when I was a kid, was a, it wasn't, it was a Republican state, but it was moderate Republicans. And Kansas was one of the uh, handful of states that had legalized abortion even before Roe v. Wade was passed. And, I mean, there's all sorts of ways in which Kansas used to be fairly progressive. And, and then, uh, you know, the culture wars came to Wichita, and we have never looked back there. Uh, will this, will a decision like that, which I think would be utterly catastrophic, would a decision like that um, defang the, the culture wars? No. They'll just find something else. The thing about the culture wars is that it's bottomless. It's endless. And the, the, what I argued and what, what's the matter with Kansas, and which I still believe today, although with 
you know, there's, there's a million details and variations that have happened since then, since that came out, is that the culture wars are just a, they're a way of expressing class anger without, you know, without openly doing that. Um, I'm going to change the subject a little bit on you here, but the, the last chapter of What's the Matter with Kansas basically prefaces all of the stuff that I've written since then about professionals and professionalism. Is when I was, you know, researching the uh, anti-abortion crusade, and I realized that they were obsessed with the role of doctors and with the role of lawyers, specifically judges, in in a you know, deciding of Roe v. Wade, you know, that that was their real target. That's what they meant when they were talking about the elite. And then you look at all your other different culture war fights, and it's always these members of the professional class. Again and again and again, that's who they target. That's what they mean when they talk about the elite. And when they talk about these people having this, um, uh, this uh, uh, un unelected power over the rest of us. And they... I don't agree with these, with these right-wingers on any aspect of the culture wars. I'm very liberal. However, when they make this critique of the professional class, it is, by and large, true. You know, it is true. These people don't have, you know, they, well, true-ish, let's say. What was it, was it Stephen Colbert to say? Truthy, right? It's got, it's, got, it's got a bit of truthiness to it, that in your individual life, you know, say you're a, uh, you know, you're, you're just an average citizen, a working class person in Wichita, Kansas, and who do you interact with that has power over you every day? Well, it's not the Koch brothers. You've never met them. They live in a compound that you, you can't even see their house, you know? This is well known, by the way, in Wichita. But you do interact with all sorts of other, you know, people who prescribe things, people who uh, give you a fine, people who give you a permit to do this, uh, authorities of all kinds. And these authorities are people with advanced degrees, these authorities are, are members of the professional class. And this is the, I think, the hidden, the kind of secret, weird, upside-down class war that is, has been running through our society for decades and decades and decades. And we just, we never, ever, ever talk about it in an open way. I mean, the conservatives certainly don't. You know, this is all a bunch of, you know, detective work that I did, you know. But it's, no, we never talk about this openly, but I think that is a that is the sort of one of the essential class conflicts. And the, the, the cover, most recent cover of the Atlantic Monthly is about the new aristocracy. It's all about that. Oh uh, yeah, well they read what's the matter with Kansas. It's all in there. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. They should. It's in listen liberal. I should say. I I developed this theory at great 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 length. Okay, it's like 250 pages. It's an easy read, okay? Next time you're on the Excella going down to Washington, you have the whole thing finished by the time you get down there. Okay. All right, so a big question, I guess. So outside of electoral politics, how do we rebuild, you know, sort of social democratic institutions in a the denuded soft dystopia that you describe? Okay, that's a great question. And... Uh, I don't have the answer for it, so what I'm going to do is like flesh out the question even more for you. And I've been reading, uh, I've been reading a lot about populism lately. This was my, my first love when I went to um, graduate school was 1890s populism, and I read all, this, all these books about it. And I recent, now that we're using the term in an entirely different way to mean something completely negative, I went back and got these books out and I've been reading them again. And the the great sort of historian of populist, populism, uh, Lawrence Goodwin, used to say that we, to have a movement like that, you know, you first have to have, um, to have a political movement like that, you first have to have a social movement. 
And populism came out of a farmer cooperative movement where they were all, all these people all over the South and the Midwest were getting together, setting up farmer cooperatives and basically doing battle with the monopolies and the capitalists of their time. And then politics was kind of a second stage. And you see the same thing with labor in the 1930s, this other great, fantastic flowering of populism in American life. Everybody's signing up for the CIO. They're signing up in enormous numbers. And then the second stage is they move into politics. And by God, they turn this country on its head. I mean, it's fantastic success uh, in the 1930s. Now then the question is, what do we have today that could replicate that? What kind of movement do we have today? Well, you saw what the Supreme Court did today to labor. I mean, you can talk about right-wing populism all you want, but these people are out to, they want to destroy organized labor and they are, you know, doing a good job at it. And so what is going to take the place of that? And the answer is, folks, I don't really know. Um, we need something, but I am, I am more and more, okay, I'm very depressed about this. You probably, I mean, I just wrote a book called Rendezvous with Oblivion, you know, <laughs> and what, what, what you see in a place like Wichita, Kansas, or wherever, you know, I keep using Wichita as my example. I'm going there next week to do the same talk. But in a place where someone would have uh, been part of the Farmers Alliance or someone would have been part of a labor union, and those organizations would have helped to uh, help them understand the world around them, those are gone today. Those have disappeared from everyday life in a place like that. And what has taken their place is Fox News and Rush Limbaugh and you get into the car and Rush Limbaugh is on and he's constantly it's like you know in North Korea how they have a loudspeaker they don't have radio they have a loudspeaker and only plays one channel and that's that's in in vast parts of this country that's that's what it feels like to me when you're there that you have this voice that is constantly explaining your relationship with the world to you and those those other things that came from the grassroots up where ordinary people got together and built a movement of their own and worked out their own understanding of the world. And by the way, and it happened again in the 60s too, with you know, not as much success. But uh, that's gone. And we need to get that back. Now, I don't know how to get that back. I mean, I don't know. Uh, uh, the punk rock circuit in the 1980s. That'll, we'll bring that back. That'll do it. <laughs> Yeah, whatever you want. Um, I was going to ask those two questions. What do we do as citizens? And then I was going to bring up this book that I read by Neil Postman, I think, called Entertaining Ourselves to Death. Amusing you know Ourselves Amusing to Death. Amusing Ourselves to That's Death. That's a great book. It was a wonderful book, and it scared the hell out of me. And he was ahead, he was ahead of this, his time, wasn't he? Was he was ahead of his time. It was, an, it was written in 1984, and it was an amazing book. And he said this was going to happen. Yeah. And he said it was going to happen because people were no longer meeting in meeting halls for hours and talking, you know, farmers and professionals and, and working out what would make sense for a small town or how they would organize a populist movement. So given that we have a capitalist society that ads sell, that fears sell, and that Fox News is piped in everywhere, like, do we have other options to organize? 
Um, and is anybody writing about it? Or th like you're questioning it too. Like who's thinking about this? Okay, so now that I gave you the, I gave you the bleak scary. side. Yeah. I gave you the bleak side. There are, there are some positive things going on right now. Those teacher strikes in the red states, that was awesome. That was fantastic. And, and the, these are, now remember, this, these are teachers unions. These are some of the most hated <laughs> labor unions out there. And they made these red state governments capitulate. I mean, an amazing, amazing series of wins for labor. And another thing, now that, and by the way, I'm going to give away part of the essay about uh, Trump here, but uh, with the labor market so tight right now, with unemployment so low, you are in a situation all of a sudden where workers are able to join unions and management can't stop them, are able to form unions. And it's happening. It's happening right now. Even as the Supreme Court you know, tries to give them the death blow, people are signing up. I have a, a friend at the AFL-CIO, and he was telling me that they had their best month in his lifetime, uh, like two months ago, in terms of new new uh, new members. So there are, and this is because of the, the 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 state of the economy that we're in right now. But there's there are hopeful things going on out there right now, um, and like I said, the results in the Bronx yesterday. Come on, that's great. That's that's really good news. Two quick questions, if I may. Um, so you mentioned uh, during your uh, talk that. Uh, the glue that held us together is, is, uh, has gone away. So w what is that glue, number one? And then um, right-wing right propaganda was, was discussed, and uh, to me that's a huge factor. Was, so was, was what? Was discussed. Uh, yes. and, and so what's, if, if the Democrats are able to come up with solutions that make sense and address the problems that we have, how, is, how are they going to be able to present that in a way that cuts through all the propaganda that, that is out there. That's a, you know, you got, that's another excellent question. <laughs> um, how are they going to cut through the propaganda? They, you know, I don't know. They don't have any, they don't have an, they don't have an organization for doing that. I mean, right now there is this kind of weird um, uh, uh, mind meld between the Democrats and the sort of, you know, uh, op-ed pages of this country's newspapers. And I mean, they are, they are, you know, you look at something like CNN and, and Trump is not, you know, he's, he's, he, he, he protests too much and he calls them fake news and all that sort of thing. But their, um, their bias is more evident today than it has ever been in my lifetime. But that doesn't mean that they're doing the Democrats any favors. <laughs> Just repeating what you know that the Democrats are good and they're the party of civility and blah 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 and and, and you know uh, and hoping that they win elections that's not good enough because the Democrats themselves need to change and I've been talking about the the the, the Democrats the, the need to change for quite a while and what I discovered in my own life is that when you talk about that um, all of a sudden people your your uh, your invitations um, uh, dry up. <laughs> that is my own personal experience, and uh, I don't know how you change that. I mean, I'm <laughs> I'm doing my best, and it's and it's not it's not it's not changing. It's going the other way. And uh, okay, that's a really good question uh, because I don't really have a name for it. I would I would talk about social solidarity. The question is, did we ever were we ever a society that had a stronger sense of togetherness? And I think the answer is that yes, we were. For all of our problems in this country in the 30s and the 40s, after World War II, or certainly during World War II, there was a sense that we were all in this together. And it's not a coincidence that, that is also the time when you have Franklin Roosevelt, you know, uh, proposing sort of, you know, 
essentially social democracy in this country and actually the Democratic Party following through on a lot of it and you and this country achieving a kind of de facto social democracy for certain kinds of people in the northern states and I think of like the the suburbs of Kansas City that I grew up in in the 60s and 70s and this is like like I said it's a Republican area but the standard of living was not all that different for white-collar people and blue-collar people. And that wasn't because we legislated it that way. It's because things like unions were strong, even in Kansas City. And that's all gone. And that sense of solidarity has completely, um, not completely, but it has largely disappeared in this country. And, oh, my God, it is worse today than it has ever been. It just it feels, you know, it gets worse and worse and worse all the time. And that's, you know, that is just, it's tragic and it's awful. And it, okay, I'm shutting up now. Uh, one, one or two more, what do you want to do? Uh, uh, last one. Hi, Tom. Thanks so much for all your work. You've really made me sit up straight on so many occasions uh, and, and think uh, hard about what's going on. Uh, what you just said uh, reminded me of uh, Eisenhower's farewell address in 1961. And if you reread that, you have this profound sense from a Republican of thinking about the future, thinking about people beyond yourself, you know, and that was in, in the very same year that uh, Daniel Borston publishes the image a guide to pseudo events. Yes, which, there's another book that's that's so important, Go which back and talks about unreality. Yep, you know, yep. As, the the pseudo event. Do you as, remember that? Yeah, as, the as, whole thing is a pseudo event now. Right. <laughs> How Trump prescient! Every morning is so a pseudo event. I don't. I'm going to read your article about Trump and his being elected. But I, I, have you thought about and I feel like I have a tin hat on, but um, what if there's an election and uh, Donald Trump loses, but he just refuses to acknowledge the results of the election, the peaceful transfer of power? What if there, we are under a kind of cyber attack, an ongoing war that no one can really agree that is actually happening, which is even more pernicious than you can imagine? So what happens if he is elected and there is a, not a peace? Well, there's a, a shrug. Look, Except uh, not a civil war, but a shrug. That's, you know, that's you're describing something awful. Uh, I, I don't know what what you do then. Jeez, <laughs> um, I have a place in Paris that I'm going, and I'll and I'll see you in the, uh, in the. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. By the way, I, I keep thinking of the Andrew Breitbart, um, my essay about Breitbart in here, which you, I wrote it right after he died, and he was kind of a, he was a more interesting guy than he seems. Um, but he used to always call for a kind of civil war against liberals. It was one of his, like, one of his strange, uh, anyhow, it was ridiculous. And, and it was all on the, the um, because he thought that conservatives were a victimized uh, group. And the conservatives were always the victims of everything. And the, the, more, the, the more you dig in right-wing culture, the more you encounter this, this sense of themselves, of their own victimization. And they, you know, they, they, they cry these hot tears for themselves and how badly they're treated. And I mean, latest example, of course, is what happened to, um, what's her name, Sarah Sanders, when she, she wanted to go in a restaurant and, you know, boo-hoo-hoo, cue the tears. <laughs> you know, it's really, really sad. But they... That's the sort of a secret ingredient in every one of the culture wars is this notion that average people are persecuted 
uh, here in America. Anyhow, I went pretty far afield from your question because there's no way I can answer that. I do not know what you do. My essay about Trump, uh, uh, I state right at the top, I have a, like, a, like a Chicago school economist, I have a whole bunch of conditions that you have to accept. <laughs> and one of them is that, is that there is no military coup. Okay, <laughs> that Trump, uh, uh, you know, competes by the rules, and and the Democrats fight him by the rules, and and uh, and and then we we talk about it from there. By the way, I am less afraid of that today than I was when he first got elected. I was very concerned when he first got elected, but so far he has not. I mean, when um, when he gets stopped, he gets stopped, and when one of his, I mean. <sighs> More or less, right? What, what did he do? Just the other day, he was uh, 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 denied in some way. What, what was it that happened to him? He wanted to do something and he wasn't able to do it. I mean, but there's been there's been a hundred things like that where he, he's not able to. Yeah, that's right. Of course, of course. This the last week's incredible scandal, right? And and it, and, it, and it looked really bad for him, and he reversed course. You know, so he's not um, Caesar, and he's also incompetent. And I always think, and I'm going to end it on, on this, this note. This is something that I've been saying since the day they uh, nominated him. And I, I, was, I went to the Republican convention and discovered that he was, in fact, incompetent. And the convention was run. It was just like they didn't know what they were doing. And um, the thing is, you think about Trumpism, you know, his sort of uh, Steve Bannon philosophy of politics. And the thing is that whether Trump stays or whether Trump goes and whether we, he is defeated in a couple of years or whether he gets reelected, Trumpism is here to stay. And the next guy to, I mean, why? Because that's how he beat, what, 17 Republicans with that? And then he beat Hillary Clinton, the best funded, uh, best advised presidential candidate of all time. They're never, the Republicans are never retreating from this strategy. This is here to stay. And the next Trump is going to be somebody that actually is competent. Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio, somebody that knows what they're doing, somebody that knows how to get things done in D.C. And that's what I worry about, more than this guy even. All right, folks, on that happy note, <laughs> thank you for coming. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast. Produced and edited by Violet Luca. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org save. 